we're glad that you're here this morning. Um, I've noticed that there are a lot of people who are new to Keystone, who've uh, visited Keystone or made their home at Keystone in the summertime, and so I might not have had the opportunity to meet you yet, and if we, you've not, uh, we've not met, my name's Brandon. I'm one of several different pastors on staff, uh, and this morning I have the, the joy, the privilege, the honor of being able to share God's word with you. So I'd encourage you to open up your Bibles to Matthew uh, chapter 11. We'll begin in verse 25, and while you're turning there, uh, I want to reiterate something that Pastor Kyle mentioned. Every Sunday we have those sermon notes, and they're both online and found at both of the entrances. And for those of you who, who like to, to write things down uh, or who like to follow, uh, kind of know where we're going, those resources are for you. I know that I retain and reflect best when I write. And so we're glad uh, and happy to be able to provide those resources for you. Uh, but like Kyle mentioned, the, the, the questions on the back might actually be more important. And I, I say that because at Keystone, we don't want to be just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. We don't want to let uh, God's word come into our minds and maybe we get puffed up with knowledge and have it not have an effect on the way that we feel or live. And those questions that are in the sermon notes are designed for you to be able to listen in such a way to ask the question, how does this gospel message shape the way that I live? And by asking these questions, in some ways, you can burrow down deep into your soul to consider how does the word of God change me, shape me? And maybe you can picture it like this. A preacher, as gifted as he may be at delivering gospel application and gospel implications, he's not able to actually deliver personalized messages. In other words, I'll speak for myself here. I don't know you well enough to be able to apply the gospel balm to whatever wound or pain you're feeling. Uh, In some ways, I'm feeling like I I fly over the congregation in an airplane and I can drop care packages, but there are over a thousand people who call Keystone home. And so chances are I'm going to drop a message that, that might be helpful for the people who are in some vicinity, and if you see it and you can go to it and receive it and find help in it, praise God for that. But aid is best delivered to people person to person. I don't know whether you need medicine or food or weapons. I can't see into the recesses of your soul to know where your pain and suffering or your sin is that I might bring correction or comfort But there are people who might be up in your business and who have your back, who you can go through these questions with and dialogue about how we can specifically apply the gospel. I might be able to provide a broad-spectrum antibiotic, but if you want to fine-tune target just the parts of your life where the gospel is going to come and provide good news for you, I think that's best done among the people who are closest to you. And so that resource is there for your good, whether, like Kyle said, it's with your small group or maybe it's with a group of friends or a spouse. We don't want the Sunday morning time in the Word to die once you leave here, but to continue to think on what's happening. And so uh, before we get into our Word, I want to 
pray for us, and I'm going to use Psalm 23 as our guide. So would you pray with me? Lord God, we believe that you are our shepherd, our good shepherd. You are the source of every good thing that we have. As our shepherd, you make us lie down in green pastures. You lead us beside still waters. You restore our souls. I pray that you would lead us this morning to be able to walk in righteousness for your name's sake. I pray that you would calm our anxious minds. And when we walk through trials of various kinds, we would be assured that we're not alone and that your presence would comfort us. I pray that you would satisfy us this morning in the midst of whatever affliction we experience so that we might shine as lights in a dark world. I pray, Lord, that you would show us your goodness and mercy this morning so that we can find our rest in you. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 11 falls within a new season in Jesus' ministry. If we were able to span the scope of Matthew very quickly, chapters 1 through 4, Matthew is uh, recounting to us the advent of Jesus' ministry. He's recording his, his birth, his flight into Egypt, his connection with John the Baptist, his temptations in the wilderness to help us link Jesus to all kinds of Old Testament themes. In chapters 5 through 7, Matthew records in some ways what is the inaugural address of Jesus. He climbs to the mountain and proclaims, this is what my administration, this is what my kingdom looks like. From chapters 8 through 10, Matthew records Jesus displaying his power and mission, displaying his authority over the things that are seen and unseen. And by the time we get to chapter 11, the verdict is uncertain of how people will receive Jesus. The polling numbers show a lot of variance. There is a contingent of people who have a high approval rating of what Jesus is doing. They like the words that he's saying, they like the deeds that he's doing, and they're ready to follow Jesus. However, there are some that are undecided. John the Baptist and his family among them, who they see what he's doing, they're just not sure about Jesus. And there's a growing contingency of people who are actively becoming opposed to Jesus. They don't like his words. They don't like his works. And it's in the context of these critics that Jesus begins to speak in chapter 11. By the time we get up to verses 25 through 30, which is where we'll spend the majority of our time, Jesus is going to have several things to say to confront the Pharisees on the issue of rest. And in doing so, he's going to do three things. He's going to give us an invitation of rest. He's going to confront or to expose imitations of rest. And he's going to paint a picture or exhibit for us what rest looks like through an illustration. Two illustrations, actually. And so let's read the text together. And as we read it, I want us to be considering how does this passage of Scripture shape the way that I think about rest? Matthew 11, verses 25, and I'm going to read through chapter 12, verse 14. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father. 
Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. At that time, Jesus began to Uh, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Let's look at the invitation that Jesus extends. This may be one of the most beautiful invitations that you can find anywhere. If you just look at Matthew eleven twenty-eight and through 30, it's a familiar passage. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me, all who labor. You might know, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. What I want to say to begin is that this is not a new invitation. Jesus isn't doing something that hasn't been done really from the very beginning of time. I want to note, who is this invitation from? This is an invite from God himself. 
If we look at what Jesus had said just prior in Matthew eleven twenty seven, Jesus says, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus is right now revealing to us a bit of the Father's heart for his people. And this heart goes back to the very beginning of time. Jesus, as the very image of the invisible God, is helping us to get a picture of what God has been saying. The same God from the Old Testament has been speaking to his people and inviting them into rest. You consider Adam and Eve were given the offer of rest from God after God had created all things and saw that everything was very good. On the seventh day, he rested. He breathed in. He's been speaking out the whole time. And we don't see that there was evening and there was morning the seventh day. This was a kind of rest that Adam and Eve were supposed to walk in forever. They were supposed to continue to walk in the peace, the flourishing the contentment of being able to enjoy what God had created, to see that it was very good and enjoy it. However, that offer of rest was met with disobedience because we see that when Adam and Eve sinned, what they were saying is, God, we don't want this. We're going to take our own path. And the future world that they now found themselves, instead of being a place of rest, was actually a place of unrest. The work that was supposed to bring joy and satisfaction ended up bringing thorns and thistles, blood, sweat, and tears, hustling and grinding. And as God kicked them out of the garden, it was as if he was saying, you remember what rest was like? That's off the table now. But he doesn't say that. In the very end of chapter 3 of Genesis, we hear that God makes a promise. And he extends that promise when we meet Abraham in chapter 12. And in chapter 17, we see that God makes a covenant. And he makes a promise that he will restore the rest that was lost in the garden. You see, God has offered rest to Adam and Eve, but they lost it. And he makes a new promise to restore the rest that was lost with Abraham. And this promise of rest is what caused him to leave his family and go into an unknown future. However, instead of obtaining that rest in the promised land, he chose to go his own way and found himself in Egypt. And soon his family line found themselves in slavery. And for years in slavery, there was this wonder, can we ever get back to the rest that was originally given to us? which is when we meet Moses. And through Moses and the law, we find that God makes a new covenant. You might know it as the Mosaic covenant. In some ways, this is a promise, again, to restore the rest that God had created the world to live in. And in order to help drill this idea of rest into the minds of the Israelites, he says, there's one day. And on this one day, I want you to keep it holy. I want you to remember that I am giving you rest I know that you don't feel it right now. You haven't obtained it in full, but on this one day a week, I want you to live as if you have entered into the fullness of rest. One day, I will remove all of your enemies, all of your burdens, all of your pains. And one day a week, I want you to separate it, make it holy by living like it's actually true today. However, we know the nation of Israel did not choose to obtain that rest, but chose to chase after idols, and they found themselves in exile. But even in exile, God is making promises through Jeremiah. He's calling to the people to repent 
Find this old pathway of life and you will find rest for your souls. And the people, even as they are in exile, refuse to repent and walk in what God has given to them. And so what we have in Matthew 11 is the same offer of rest that God has been making to his people over and over again. God is revealing to us that there is a rest that is still on the table. Whatever aches and cravings you have for a world that you feel like has been lost in the garden, God is saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is my big idea, actually, that that God gives rest to restore humanity. Restore humanity to life, restore humanity to peace, restore humanity to flourishing. When Jesus is making the invitation to come to him and find rest, a particular kind of rest, we're talking about a deep rest. Not a surface rest, but a rest for our souls, the rest that our souls were made to experience. And Jesus wants us to connect his promise with the promises of the entire Old Testament. It's a kind of rest that will actually enable us to experience surface rest. It's not until we experience this deep rest of our souls that we'll be able to experience the rest of a good nap or rest of a good vacation or a rest of a a moment of solitude. Jesus is saying, I want you to find the deep rest that your souls need, that you might find your humanity restored. So the invitation is from God, but... I want to see who is it for? Who is Jesus sending this invitation to? He says, come to me all. So this is a broad invitation, but he narrows it by saying to all who are heavy laden, to all who labor, to all who are weary. This series, the past three weeks, has probably sparked more reflection and conversation in in my own world uh, than any other series at Keystone that I've encountered. The number of times that I've talked with Pastor Kyle or or Pastor Joel or Pastor Charlie or, or talked with Bethany, talked with others about what is this rest? How can I find it? In fact, Kyle asked a question in the the very first week. He said, what are some ways that you evaluate whether your life is too busy or not? I ended up asking a similar question that I didn't, I, I don't know that I have a great answer for. I ended up asking, how do I know when I need to rest? And I thought it, it would be nice if if I had some sort of notification. Like maybe just a little gauge on my wrist that I could just every once in a while just look down. Okay, great, 80%. I'm fine. Maybe a little notification when I drop to 20%, I can say, okay, I need to start winding down here. Um, And and as I started thinking about the idea of uh, a little gauge, I thought, oh, you know what? As a new dad, uh, having a sort of gauge cluster on my uh, one-year-old toddler uh, would be really helpful. Uh, I don't have the kind of mother's intuition to know what cry means what. Uh, I know I can hear Eloise cry. There's a there's little warning sign. Sometimes it's just fussy. That's like a yellow light. Uh, sometimes there's a full out cry. It's a red light. She gives me a warning, but without that intuition and without a gauge cluster, I don't know what she needs. I don't know if I need to get her a snack and a drink uh, or a binky and a bunny because she's tired. I just don't know. Uh, maybe it's no surprise to you, uh, one-year-old Eloise is really lousy at articulating what her needs are. 
Um, there's one where I don't need the gauge clutcher for. I don't want to toot my own horn. Uh, but I am fairly good at picking up when Eloise needs a diaper change. So that doesn't need to be on the gauge cluster. But it is really hard to know how to care for someone when they either don't have the language skills or the self-awareness to know what they need. And as I reflected on that, I realized there is not a whole lot of difference between my toddler and me. I have my own warning signs. And I'm just as bad at interpreting what they are. One of the things that I um, realized after getting married is other people are really good at noticing my, what my warning signs are. If you asked my wife, Bethany, uh, Brandon, uh, Bethany, when, when do you notice when Brandon needs a break? I, I suspect she would say something like, well, he just starts to zone out. He'll just sit down and stare into nothing. Conversations with him when he's tired, he's, he's short, matter of fact. In fact, it, it's harder for him to, to go to bed at night. It's harder for him to wake up in the morning. When Brandon's overworked or overwhelmed, even little things become big things in his mind and he doesn't have the resilience to take on new challenges. One of the things that I realized while I was on sabbatical, this was three weeks in, I wrote these words in my journal. I said, I've been straining and striving, stretching in the short term just to make it another week. I've lost the ability and creativity to think into the future. Why that's so disturbing for me is uh, for two years, I pushed off rest. I was supposed to take uh, an eight-week sabbatical in the summer of 2020, and I refused uh, in some ways, I justified myself. I said, okay, I need to be here. Uh, we are encountering all kinds of unprecedented times with COVID, and I need to help with this shutdown, this restart up. I need to be part of the conversation regarding masks and uh, all that stuff. And so I did the honorable thing is I kept working and said, I'll take the break next summer. 2021 came, and we found ourselves uh, right in the middle of succession planning. And I said, you know what? Uh, this is too important of a time for me to step away. And I'm going to help Keystone in this time, help transition from Keith to Kyle, help transition from Charlie to Joel. And so I just kept going. And it wasn't until summer of 2022 that I made this realization that I've been straining and striving, stretching just to make it one more week. I don't know how long I felt like that. I don't know how long it was that I didn't have the same kind of ability to think, the same kind of ability to be creative about thinking about the future. And frankly, I don't know how that has impacted Keystone in a negative way or my family in a negative way. What I realize is, is that I didn't know it until I stopped. Because it's really hard to know when we're feeling actually weary. There were, it was too easy for me to think I was too important to step away. It was too easy to enjoy the praise of others who saw me hustling, who, who saw me sacrificing, and the fumes of pride and self-sufficiency blinded me to how weary I had become. This invitation to rest from God 
though it is for all, the only ones who end up receiving it as a message of good news are those who realize that they are weary and heavy laden. And maybe that is you. I praise God for that. But I'm wondering whether there's a group of people who refuse to come and find rest for their souls in Jesus because of their own pride, their own self-sufficiency, that they don't recognize how in need they are. And so I want to move on to what Jesus has to say to confront the imitations of rest. I don't think it's a coincidence that Matthew includes chapter 12, verses 1 through 14, to juxtapose against what Jesus has just said in chapter 11. The confrontation that Jesus is going to have with the Pharisees is to help us see his revelation of who God is. Matthew records many encounters and occasions where the kingdom of God clashes with the customs of religious people. And and in this particular section, Jesus is going to address the Pharisees, his critics, on the issue of rest. And maybe just to give us a, a picture of why this clash, it's important to know how important the Sabbath day was in the minds of the Pharisees or any practicing Jew. The Sabbath was a really big deal. When God gave the commandment to Moses to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, the Jews believed in order for us to obey, we must not work. They realized that if they did work on the Sabbath, they had violated God's command, and individually it meant that they were to be punished by death. But actually we see that it's even bigger than that. The the Sabbath represented this covenant. It was a sign of the relationship that God had built with Moses and the Israelites when he freed them from the bondage of slavery and released them into the rest of the promised land. The Sabbath was supposed to set them apart as a nation to show the world that they are a different type of people. And so to disobey as a people this concept of Sabbath is actually listed as one of the reasons that God sent them into exile when they disobeyed it. Sabbath was a big deal. And this is where there's a part of the Pharisees that I sympathize with. I don't know if you sympathize with a Pharisee, but I do. Because what they had was this command from God, this covenant from God. And they wanted to protect themselves from punishment by death and also protect the people from exile They wanted to do what God had told them to do. They saw it as a gift of rest separate from the bondage and slavery. They they knew this was a good thing. And so they did what anyone does when we cherish something is we try to put a fence around it. They created what eventually became what's called the oral tradition. It was a set of laws that help clarify, well, what is rest? What does it mean to not work? And so they said, well, if you walk this particular distance, it's okay. That's okay. But if you take any step further, that's work. If you, if you go out and you carry a mat, pick up sticks, start a fire, you're doing work, so don't do these things. What they were was fences designed to protect people from the fallout of breaking this good command. 
And what I mean by I sympathize with the Pharisees is that I build my own fences. Maybe you build your own fences. Take a look at the, the, the picture uh, up on the screen. Um, this is the picture of the Grand Canyon. I've never been, uh, but that looks both beautiful and terrifying. And so when I look at this fence, I think, thank God for a fence. I get too close to that edge and I might fall in. And so I'm glad somebody has put a blockage in the way that would lead to destruction. And I'm sure that that fence is there because there was once upon a time when someone got too close to that edge. And then there was an outcry that said, we can't let that happen again. Let's put up a fence. You put up fences in your house. If you have toddlers, your baby gate is a literal fence to protect something you cherish, to keep them from tumbling downstairs. If you have teenagers, you have a figurative fence, maybe, for them. If you have a curfew for them, you have a figurative fence to protect the child you love from acting a fool after 10 p.m. Maybe your family follows the Billy Graham rule. That's a fence. It essentially says, I love my spouse so much that I will not get anywhere close to a pathway that would lead me to break my covenant vows. Maybe you built your own fences just over the past three weeks. You said, I am not going to have my cell phone in my bedroom, no cell phone at the dinner table, and you've created a fence around this time in order for you to invest in something that's important, the investing in relationships that matter. I've built my own fences around my day off, which is on Fridays. I don't check work email on Fridays. These are fences. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in having a fence to protect the things that are important. But just as fences can keep you from going down a bad path, fences can also keep you from going down a good path. And this is where Jesus takes issue with the Pharisees. He sees that the fences that they have constructed have not only robbed the people of their ability to see the Sabbath gift of rest as a gift, but it's actually given the Pharisees reasons to condemn and bring more burdens upon the people. So Jesus says, take a look at back at Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Jesus says, come to me, and we need to understand what it means to come to him. What it means to come to him is to come and take, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke. All the Pharisees have a yoke. If you don't know, the yoke is the set of teaching. Jesus has his own set of teaching, and it's going to differ from the imitations of rest from the Pharisees. Jesus says, come and take my yoke upon you, which is to say, come and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, my teaching, is easy. My burden, my teaching is light. Jesus highlights a major difference between his heart and the heart of the Pharisees. Jesus says his heart is gentle and lowly, which is to say to contrast with the harsh and haughty 
hearts of the Pharisees. Not only did the Pharisees create burden upon burden, where the rest became far more of a burden, but even when opportunities to show mercy and grace arose, the Pharisees didn't lift a finger to make it restful for them. See, the Pharisees were so worried about keeping the law of God that they missed the giver of the law. They were so worried about following the letter of the law that they missed the one to whom the law points. And I don't think that Pharisees are alone in missing the point. They devoted themselves to the scriptures but missed the one to whom the scriptures point. They devoted themselves to the temple and its sacrifices, but missed the one to whom the temple points. They invested themselves in protecting the law, but missed the heart of God behind it. It would have been so blasphemous for the Pharisees to hear the words of Jesus when he said, there is something greater here. In the minds of the Jews, David, Moses, the law, Sabbath, These were the best things. And Jesus coming and saying, there is something greater here, means that these other things are shadows. And there is no substance in a shadow. I was walking with my daughter Eloise on Wednesday, and I snapped this picture because I think that um, shadows are funny, particularly when the sun is low. Uh, She is not 16 feet tall uh, in real life. But hopefully you can tell from the picture that that's, that's her. Uh, I have the really long legs. She has the smaller but longer legs. Um, you know, uh, it is funny to watch toddlers like wave and see their hand and, and wonder like, well, what's, what's real? Uh, you know, this shadow is not Eloise. There is a kind of beauty that's behind the shadow that's casting the shadow. Or as Dane Ortland would say it like this, He is that of which the Sabbath is a shadow. Jesus is the shadow caster. He doesn't just forgive sins. He lets the frenetic frenetic RPMs of the heart slow down into calm sanity. And no external circumstances can threaten that rest as we look to him. He wants us to see that the Sabbath is a shadow that points to Jesus. There is something greater going on. I wonder if Matthew had recorded this section in the Sermon on the Mount, whether or not Jesus would say something like this. You have heard it said that in order to find rest, you must not work. But I say to you, if you would come and find rest, you must come to me. You see, rest is not found Through the prohibition of work, it's found in a person. Or to phrase it like I do on the notes, rest is found in a person, not the prohibition of work. It would be helpful for us to see that as good as a nap might be, unless that nap leads us to Jesus, it's a bad fence. There are a lot of religious and irreligious voices who are proclaiming the secret to finding rest. Secular sources, self-help books, 
Here is how you can find rest. And it might be through meditation. It might be through a diet. It might be through a, a digital fast. It might be by reducing your work week. And what Jesus is saying, you're not going to find any of this rest that you crave unless that fence leads you to me. It may be that you can set up fences that lead you to Jesus, but you're not going to find rest from your vacation time. You're not going to find rest by reducing your work week. You're not going to find rest by keeping your cell phone out of your bedroom. Those all may be good fences, but only as long as they guide you along a path to get you to Jesus. Which brings me to the last section. And uh, if I had probably four more Sundays, I could preach chapter 12, 1 through 14. Uh, But for this morning, we'll have to just settle for a snapshot. And Jesus is going to provide an illustration of his doctrine. The doctrine that he proclaims is rest is found in him. Come to Jesus and you will find deep rest for your souls. But Jesus models for us something that I want to be true of Keystone as well. That we want to be both orthodox in our proclamation and orthodox in our demonstration. That is to say, we want to be faithful in proclaiming the good news about Jesus, and we want to be faithful in creating a community that has been shaped by that good news. We want to both speak and do faithfully, and Jesus does this by walking us through two stories where he explains to us what rest is like. You can look at it in verses Uh, 1 through 14, we have two stories, one with Jesus and his disciples plucking grain, one with a man with a withered hand. And in these cases, what we see is a picture that gospel rest in some ways looks like coming to Jesus to find food. In another case, rest looks like coming to Jesus to find healing. So with the disciples and the food, We see them walking through the field, and I find finding rest in Jesus looks a lot like trusting Jesus for provision. I think it's just a a really simple picture of what it means to find rest in Jesus. When we're walking with him, he will take care of our needs. For these disciples who have no home, no bed, no food, they found rest when they were in Jesus' presence and trusting him to provide them with the food they need. And I wonder if our failure to trust God for provision is one of the sources of the unrest in our souls. We are restless, stirring, weary, heavy laden because we believe that in order for me to have what I need, I need to go get it. That's why you might not take a day off in a week because you believe that your provision that you need is dependent upon your ability to get it. I don't know what kind of provision it is that you need, that you are searching for and trying to get from other sources. Maybe it is that you need to trust that Jesus will provide you with a greater identity than can come from being a good mom or a good student. I don't know what you need. Maybe you are restless because you have not trusted Jesus to be the one who will give you a greater security than your retirement account or a productive business. 
Maybe, I don't know what you need, but maybe it is that you are restless in your souls because you've not come to Jesus to find a greater worth than what can come from a relationship or a degree. But I wonder if we experience so much deep restlessness because we haven't come and trusted Jesus for what he's actually already given to us. There's so much hustling, so much busyness, trying to grasp on to things that, in one sense, God has already given to you in Christ. The second scenario with Jesus interacting with the man with the withered hand, I see as finding rest in Jesus looks like trusting him for restoration. If we're going to live in this world that is post the fall, none of us are going to make it out unscathed. In order to live in this world, we will all feel the burden, the load of thorns and thistles, whether it's because of sin that we commit or sin that is committed against us or just the mere fact that we're living in a fallen world. If you live in this world, it, it will be draining to you. I'm not surprised by the amount of fatigue that exists in people because there is so much pain and hurt that we can experience that will just suck the life out of you. Watching the news to me is a soul-sucking activity because I, can't, I just don't have enough compassion. There's a phrase, compassion fatigue, when you just can't take any more empathy for people. You just don't have any more to give. You might experience mental fatigue because there's so many things swirling around in your head. I think families with lots of kids and lots of schedules, I just, I don't look forward to that day because I don't know that I have the mental capacity. I would feel mentally fatigued or sensor, sensory fatigued. There's just too much busyness and noise and uh, going here and there. I, I know how I feel drained by living in a world. I'm not any more surprised by that than when my cell phone starts to get drained. If I'm using certain apps, I don't know, maybe you know, there are certain apps that just drain your battery far more. And in my life, I find that some days uh, my battery is down at 10% at noon. And I think, oh, there's a lot going on. And when that happens with my phone, what I need to do is recharge it. And as I recharge it, we find it re-energized in order to go back out and continue to do the work that we've been called to do. In some ways, that's what we're called to do. We're called to come to Jesus and find restoration for humanity, restoration of our energy. Um, Maybe you know uh, what a duty cycle is. Uh, For those of you who are handy with electronics, maybe you know. And if not, I'm going to give you a little education. Uh, If if you have a blender at home, at least like my blender, uh, it has a duty cycle where uh, it will run, but it won't run forever. So if you go home and you plug your blender in and you turn it on high and maybe put like peanuts in there, after a couple minutes you'll have peanut butter. But if you keep it going and you don't turn that motor off, it's going to burn up because it has a duty cycle. In order to operate your blender properly, you need to have a rhythm or a cycle of work and rest. And it must rest a certain amount of time before it can start working again. I don't know that we're any different than a blender in some ways. I mean, physically, on the surface, our bodies need food, they need drink, they need sleep. If you don't experience enough of those things on a consistent, rhythmly cycle, you will die. If you don't 
breathe, you will die. There is a rhythm to your breath, to your eating, to your drinking, to your sleeping. Our souls are a lot like that. Your souls need rest. And one of the things that Keystone does to give us time to rest is celebrate communion. And so this morning as we celebrate communion, what we do is we have the opportunity to to come to Jesus, to be able to pause from uh, even singing and be able to just carve out some time to come and rest in Jesus. We have this be deliberate because Jesus is inviting everyone Uh, In a second, we'll we'll celebrate it, but I want to just make sure I reiterate the the fact that you understand who is invited to come and participate in this little celebration. If you're a believer at Keystone, clearly, we want to eat with you. We're we're glad that you're here. Uh, If you're visiting from another church and you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, come to him to find rest for your souls. We want to eat with you. You're invited. If you're not a believer, Uh, But maybe this morning you have felt and heard the call of God to say, come and rest. And you're like, I want to come and rest. We want you to eat with us. We want you to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Everyone's invited. But the the invite is only good for those who have taken advantage of it. And so if, 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 if you've not come to Jesus, not yet anyway, we would just ask that you pass. So if you've not received uh, elements for communion, just lift up your hand. Some of the ushers will come through. There's a scene in Matthew 22 where Jesus tells the the story of a man holding a feast and he sends out invitations and, and no one comes. And so he sends out invitations again and no one comes. In fact, they end up beating his servants who share this message of coming and feasting. And so the king sends out invites to everyone. But actually, the only people that can come are the ones who are dressed for the wedding. When we celebrate communion, we are remembering that Jesus has broken his body and shed his blood that we might be clothed in his righteousness. We come to the table with filthy rags, but in order for us to enter into this feast, we need to remember that we have been clothed not in our own righteousness, but in Christ's. And so the worship team is going to sing, and I I want you to stay seated. If you want to sing, that's great. If you want to just meditate and pray, thank God, come and seek what he needs to provide for you to feel rest for your souls. And I'll come back and lead us in communion in a second.